In Shakespeare's Hamlet, there's a line uh, during Hamlet's soliloquy that so many people have either known or said, and oftentimes without realizing um, its origin. And that's the line, to be or not to be. That is the question. Now, leaving aside what Hamlet was considering when he uttered those words, although it may be, and I think it is, an incredibly recognized question, in our neck of the woods, especially these days, there is a more common question that's being asked. To move or not to move? That is the question. What you will come to find today is that this psalm speaks to that very issue and is in many ways immediately, immediately pertinent to our day. Now, to be sure, let me say this on the front end here. I do not think that every individual who is planning to move from New York should take down the for sale signs in front of their houses and fire their real estate agents. It's more complicated than that. The Christian... Um, oftentimes with situations like these, uh, does not find a, a sort of one-size-fits-all application. But the Christian is to take stock of where their trust is. They're to take inventory of what their duties are. And they are to know that men like David have had to answer that kind of question, to take flight or not to take flight. And given the fact that this psalm is in the Psalter, It's a good reminder to us that this wasn't only David's issue, but God recognized that this would be an issue for the people of God in generations, right? So this wasn't just David's psalm, but it was Israel's psalm. It was the psalm of the people of God, even to this day, so we could relate to it, even as it was pertinent for David and pertinent for other Israelites and so on. But we'll get there in a moment into the text. But as we make our way into the text, let's first briefly consider the superscript. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. So David composed this psalm as he was, to use language from 2 Peter chapter 1, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the one to whom the proper execution of the musical arrangement was entrusted was the chief musician. So this wasn't some sort of unauthorized peek at David's diary. This was God's word to God's people through David, the human author. And it was to be sung by God's people, even as God's people were to be instructed by it. So God's people were to sing it, and God's people were and are to be instructed by it. So with that being said, let's jump into the text. We begin in Psalm 11, verse 1, where we read, In the Lord, or in Yahweh, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? So David begins Psalm 11 in a way that we often see David begin Psalms with a statement of faith. In the Lord or in Yahweh, he uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I put my trust. So the preposition in plus the noun Yahweh are appropriately found. They're joined together at the beginning of this verse. In the Hebrew, that's in the emphatic position. And it makes sense. In Yahweh, emphatically, right there at the beginning of the verse. Emphatically, in Yahweh, I put my trust. Now we've seen this in previous psalms that we've studied. The verb here for trust kind of literally connotes to take refuge in. To take refuge in. So notice David did not place trust in himself or in his abilities. He didn't place his trust in his mighty men. If you read through the latter part of a chapter in 2 Samuel, you'll see that his mighty men were indeed very mighty um, by the grace of God. 
He didn't place his trust even in the closest of friends. And he indeed had a very close friend and say, Jonathan. But he placed his trust in Yahweh, the God who is a refuge, not only to David, but to all who seek him. Now again, that verb for to trust could be understood as to seek refuge in. So if you're looking for a visual illustration of what it looks like to trust God, if you were to say, well, George, paint a picture for me of what it looks like to actually trust God. What it looks like is, it looks as though you're running into a kind of shelter for protection. So trusting in God looks like going to Him, and you're looking to Him for shelter and ultimate protection. That's what it looks like to trust the living God, Yahweh, who is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what is particularly noticeable about this declaration is the context in which it was found. That's what, that's what makes this declaration stand apart. You're used to seeing David or the psalmist say something like, in Yahweh I put my trust. But the context here is rather unique. Now notice what's going on here. This statement of faith was made against the backdrop or in opposition to others who were saying to him what is found in the second half of verse 1. David says, How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain?" So the question immediately becomes, who is the you that David is speaking about here? When he says, how can you say to my soul, who are they? Were they enemies who were mocking David because so often he had took flight, say, to this mountain or to that mountain? I say probably not because we're going to see shortly after, we're going to see that Whoever he's referring to as you, they identify David and company as upright, and they identify a group as wicked. So I wouldn't think that they're identifying themselves as wicked here. So I don't think this is David's enemies that he's referring to. So who were they? Were they friends? Advising him with their good intentions and with his best interest in their minds? I think that seems to be the most likely option that they were people that cared about David and company, that they saw themselves as looking out for him. And they're basically saying to David, we're going to see their argumentation a little bit further in verses 2 and 3, but they're basically saying to David, David, you have to get out of here. You have to make haste. You have to be like a bird that's going to take flight into the mountains. You have to go. The way for you, David, is the way of escape. And sometimes the way for some will be the way of escape. But however, the way of escape isn't always the way out. You can find a case study example of that, if you want, in Jeremiah 42, though it continues beyond Jeremiah 42. In Jeremiah 42, it's a very interesting uh, time. It's post the Babylonian sack of Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah 42, we find this interesting group, the remnant that's left in Judah. They approach Jeremiah, and they want Jeremiah to pray to God on their behalf. That was interesting in, in itself. They want Jeremiah to pray. Ask God, essentially, was what they wanted. Ask God, should we stay here in Judah, or should we flee to Egypt? Interestingly, they really didn't want any other answer than the answer that they had in their mind already. But they wanted Jeremiah to pray. So Jeremiah does pray, and God in no uncertain terms tells them the answer. God told them that he would protect them and that he would build them up in the land that they were in. But if they took flight to Egypt, it wasn't going to work out well. Pestilence, the sword, would find them there in Egypt. Well, Jeremiah gave the people the message, and guess what the people thought of Jeremiah? 
thought he was a false prophet. You didn't give us the message we want to hear, so doubtless you are a false prophet. They called this prophecy false. You see that in Jeremiah 43, um, verse 2. That's how they reacted. But the point being is this. I use that as an illustration of this, that the way of escape isn't always the way out. Sometimes it could be, if you will, the way through. Enduring a situation, bearing up under circumstances instead of taking flight from them. Now in this case, in Psalm 11, those who were giving David these possibly good intention driven exhortations didn't realize that their exhortations were actually temptations. Good intentions, I would assume, I can't say that with definitude, but I would assume good intentions were behind those statements, but they didn't realize that they were essentially temptations to distrust God and to take his safety into his own hands. Therefore, David, in this context, being convinced that flight wasn't right, he says, in Yahweh I have put my trust. So how does this apply to you? How does this apply to me? (laughs) More pertinent question that we'd want to ask is, how does this reconcile with, say, Jesus' words in Matthew 10.23, when he tells his disciples and those that he had been uh, sending out, was going to send out, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. How does it reconcile with what we see the early church do in, say, Acts chapter 1, when a great persecution arose and they were scattered into the regions of Judea and Samaria? The apostles, we know, stood in Jerusalem, but the church was scattered. How does this reconcile with, say, the apostle Paul, who, when persecuted in one location, went to another location to continue to preach the gospel? So how do you reconcile these things together? Well, I think, obviously... The application will be different for different people. But you might start by saying this. There's a priority that's greater than safety. Duty. There's a priority that's greater than duty as well. But we'll save that for the end. (laughs) For some, their duty before God will require staying in a certain place. While for others, their duty before God may warrant moving to another place. There could be times, and this is when it gets especially difficult, when there are competing duties. When you're like, well, I could fulfill this duty here, and I, could, I have another duty I could fulfill over there. And in those times, I would say that really warrants prayer, kind of James 1, kind of asking God for wisdom, seeking godly counsel and a multitude of counselors, their safety, ransacking the word of God for direction and wisdom because his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and so on. But as a principle, every Christian would do well to embrace the following. Duty is more important than safety. Sometimes they will not be opposed to one another. Like Paul's flight was connected to his duty, right? He was, an, he was called to give the gospel to the Gentiles, so his flight was connected to his duty. So sometimes the two will not be opposed to one another. I think, but at times clearly they may be. I think George Horn's words are a fitting consideration especially in light of what we know that David knew was his duty in this psalm. Horn wrote, The Christian, like David, in perilous times, should make God his fortress and continue doing his duty in his station. He should not, at the instigation of those about him, like a poor, silly, timorous, inconstant bird, either fly for refuge to the devices of worldly wisdom or desert his post and retire into solitude while he can serve the cause in which he is engaged. 
Nor indeed is there any mountain on earth out of the reach of care or trouble. Temptations are everywhere, and so is the grace of God. So we'll consider this a little bit more as we see the argumentation of um, what appear to be faint-hearted friends as we get into verses 2 and 3. Now, there are other textual matters we could consider here. I'm just going to briefly mention them rather than go into them deeply. We could look at the language that David uses when he says, How can you say, to my soul? Which is literally communicated in the Hebrew. How can you say, to my soul? So David is clearly speaking of himself here, but the language appears to be a little bit more potent than a pronoun would be. It's as though like you're, you're saying something and it's getting down to the, 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 the depths of who I am. Like You're appealing to the depths of my soul. I could speak about the word that's used here for bird. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, the word that's used for bird is in the plural. So the language here may connote the idea of flee like a flock of birds or flee you flock of birds, speaking not only of David, but if you will, David and company. Could speak also of the metaphor that's used. Take flight like a bird to the mountains. Go through the Old Testament and you'll see that metaphor used um, here and there. David used it himself when he was speaking with Saul. You can see that in 1 Samuel 26, verse 20. You can see that kind of metaphor used in Jeremiah 48, 28. I could talk about the mountains, how the mountains were at times places of refuge for God's people. Think of the mountains in the days of Gideon. Think of how Jesus, during the Olivet Discourse, told people that when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, flee where? Flee to the mountains. And how birds were that kind of example, that sometimes when they were hunted, they would flee to a local and nearby mountain. But rather than than spending extended time on those points, I briefly mention them, so as to help your understanding of the verse. But with that being said, let's proceed to consider the reasoning behind the counsel that was given in verse 1. Verses 2 and 3 read, For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now these words appear, note I'm saying appear, and I'll tell you why I say that in a moment, appear to be, in my estimation, the counsel of what one commentator called the faint-hearted friends. It's also possible here that David was speaking at this point to God and he's no longer recalling what others were saying to him. So some argue, and you can see this in different translations, some would argue that David is making the statement in verse 1 about what others have said to him, and then David is speaking now in verses 2 and 3. Now, some people chop it up a little bit differently, and they'll say that he's recalling what people have said to him in verses 1 and 2, but then he's speaking in verse 3. With all that being said, I'll tell you where I land. I think the most likely option is that David is still recalling the argumentation of his faint-hearted friends in verses 2 and 3. That's where I fall. And we'll look at verses 2 and 3 under that rubric, assuming that it's the faint-hearted friends that he's, re- he's recalling their exhortation to him. For look as though they are calling David to consider the situation before him. It's kind of a hortatory interjection here. Look, look, don't you see what's going on? Pay attention. Look, it's very obvious why you should flee like a bird to your mountains. For look, and what's the argumentation? The wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on their string. So they are like hunters with their weapons in their hands. They, They have it queued up. They have it ready to go. And the emphasis does appear to be on the imminence of the danger that is before David. 
The bow is bent and the arrow is on the string. It's as though the enemies are but a release away from firing it. For look, David, don't you see how much danger you are in? Appears to be the idea. The last line of the verse reads that they may shoot secretly. That could also be rendered that they may shoot amid darkness. Septuagint has in a moonless night. So again, connoting the idea of darkness. That they might shoot secretly or in darkness at the upright in heart. So they're not looking for a fair fight, David. They're looking for something more akin to a hit. And they're ready to take you out. And their targets are the upright in heart, which in this context would include David, but was not limited to David. Now, since this is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's applicable for Christians of all generations. It was applicable for the people of God in the days of David and so on. And it's not hard to imagine some circumstances in which David might have found himself where he was hearing this kind of counsel. You know, the situation that he was in with Saul comes to mind, and many commentators note that. Perhaps some would also imagine the Absalom scenario as well, though the former appears to be much more the the favorite there. But again, you can see the rationale, I would think, of David's counselors. These men are hunting you, David. They have their sights set upon you. And at any given moment, unless you take flight, you're a dead man. And now, again, assuming their argumentation continues, look at verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So this statement is drawing upon the metaphor of a foundation. The Hebrew word for foundation here could be rendered pillar. But again, the same idea is connoted. A foundation or a pillar is integral to the support of a building. And if the foundation or if the pillars are destroyed, say for example via an earthquake, the whole thing comes tumbling down and there's nothing left to preserve the building. So you can see the kind of idea that's being uh, connoted here. The metaphor's application is essentially this. If the moral foundation of a society, or you might say if the bedrock of a stable social order is destroyed, so the argument goes. Right? If you get rid of the moral foundation, if you get rid of the, the stable order of a society, if that's gone, David, what can the righteous do? And the implication is, there's nothing they could do. They're just going to be easy pickings for the wicked. You see the rationale. If unjust people within a society disregard both God and man, if they disregard both divine law and common law, and if they are unwilling to act with restraint, and if they act with unrestrained evil, what can a righteous person do but flee like a bird making haste for the mountains? There's the argument. Now I want you to see two things with this argument. See the logic of it. It seems to be a very logical argument, right? You can imagine. I, I would just even imagine just like saying that. And people are like, yeah, that just, just makes sense. Right? If that happens, what can the righteous do? There's nothing the righteous do. So the righteous has to get out of Dodge. And the righteous has to run like a bird or flee like a bird to the mountains for safety. So you see the logic of it. I want you also to see where it's coming from. And again, I'm telling you, I'm thinking this is the argument of those who are looking out for David. And I find it interesting that sometimes you could have counsel that comes from people that care about you, even with good intentions in mind, that may go against the will of God in a given context. 
Now, when that counsel is clearly anti-biblical, it should be relatively easy for a Christian to recognize. Like, no, that does not line up with the word of God, therefore it's unbiblical. You may have good intentions behind it, you may love me a lot, and so on, but that just doesn't line up with God's will. It's more difficult when it isn't a black and white matter in Scripture. Like, when it is a to move or not to move kind of question. And how do you discern in that moment? It's a little bit more challenging to see. But what I want you to see is this. Do not assume that just because somebody has good intentions for you behind their counsel, that that makes it good and godly counsel. Right? To paraphrase language that Peter used when he was speaking to Jesus, when Jesus had spoke about going to the cross, and Peter said something along the lines of, far be it from you, Lord. Right? What did did Jesus say? You know, I thank you for that good-intentioned counsel. It just happens to be not too right for me right now. Get behind me, Satan. So there may have been good intentions behind it, but there was, it was also not lining up with the will of God. It was lining up with a satanic mindset, you might say. So I want you to be aware that when you receive counsel, you always want to discern it by the word of God, according to the will of God as best you can. Now, I want you to also assume, assume here that this is the, these are the friends speaking, and they're basically saying here, and you know the implied answer to their question, uh, there's, there's nothing the righteous can do. And I don't buy into that. <laughs> because sometimes, sometimes, the remedy for at least some, maybe if it's not the remedy for all, is going to be, and the right step for people to be, to, to, right step for people to take is to stand. Call to stand and face society. Speaking truth in love. Being salt. And a voice of truth to a society that has been made deaf by the relentless intake of and enjoyment of lies. So you might say, well, what can the righteous do? Well, it isn't the righteous' responsibility, especially for a New Testament Christian, to all of a sudden, you know, set society back up in the right way. No, the responsibility of a Christian is to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. To image the Lord Jesus Christ. To be salt and to be light. And sometimes, at least for some, though it may not be the call for all, is to stand and to be light and to be a voice of truth to a generation that is wallowing in darkness even as the society crumbles around it. That will be the call for some. Even if it's not the call for all. Now, as Derek Kidner notes in his commentary, for an answer... David will look up and see the immense realities that overshadow these events. Verse 4 reads, The Lord, or Yahweh, is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne, or Yahweh's throne, is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. Powerful verse. Now we see what I would argue is a kind of shift here. We're seeing David all of a sudden go from looking at the, at, the, at the situation before him, hearing the counsel that he was given, and now he's lifting his eyes up towards heaven. The Lord, or Yahweh, is in his holy temple. Again, at the beginning of this statement, this verse in the Hebrew, is Yahweh. It's in the emphatic position. God's covenant name right here in the emphatic position in the Hebrew. The description here, if you look at the verse is referring to the description of God's heavenly sanctuary. It's as though we rise from the chaos of the picture painted in the previous verses to behold the serene and sovereign majesty of God's unrivaled supremacy. That's what's happening. Chaos down below. The foundations are being destroyed. And all of a sudden David looks up and he sees the serenity, as it were, of the sovereign God sitting on His throne. He's fine. 
He's not running. He is on His throne. You get the sense that David has his eyes ascending upward and Godward in this moment. And I just love that idea. In the midst of all that's going on, he sees God on his throne, as it were. And he's not running, and I think that little reminder is helpful for all of us, regardless of the times in which we live. Regardless how much or how little our situation finds an apples-to-apples comparison with the one that David was in. God is seated on his throne, and his city, to use language from the writer of Hebrews, is a city with foundations. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. Now again, the temple that's in view here is the heavenly temple. We know that evidenced by the parallelism in the reference to heaven. And notice that the temple is described as holy. Right? That te- regardless of what's going down here, that temple is holy. It's set apart, to use language from one commentator, that's in- from anything that's profane or physical or earthly. And the Lord's throne is in heaven. To reference language from Alan Ross, far above all the earthly kingdoms of this world, God is sovereign, reigning over the affairs of humankind. Now, contextually, it appears that David is probably, at this point, providing some reasons for why he's not taking the counsel that he was given. And that appears to be part of what's going on right here, too. David's giving some reasoning for why he's not taking flight, because he doesn't have to. His care, ultimately, is under God's protection. He's God's responsibility. His trust was well-placed. God was enthroned far above all injustice. Therefore, if one is concerned about the displacement of order in society, understandably, and if one fears a kind of approaching anarchy, understandably, a moment of this kind of remembrance would do one well. Yahweh is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. It's reminiscent. I remember one commentator noted, I thought it was a great reference. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 6, when Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And it's interesting, when you you consider the reign of King Uzziah, I know he had kind of a not-so-good ending, you know, assuming to himself a role that he shouldn't have, uh, and so on, but he reigned for quite a while, a number of decades, and it was a prosperous time under King Uzziah. And you can imagine the people of Judah saying, Oh no, King Uzziah is gone? And kind of the society wondering, what's going to come next? And in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne, on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The last line of the verse reads, His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Now this is very interesting. God's observation here is communicated, kind of put in human terms. God's ever-present, omniscient observation of everything that goes on, externally or internally, put in human terms. It's a kind of close examination that's connoted. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. You might say, why the reference to eyelids? His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Well, there could be different reasons for that. Rather than use the same word, eyes again, maybe the the writer here, David, is, is using a different word for poetic purposes, but it can connote a kind of squinting. As though to say, again in human terms, it's as though God is giving close scrutiny to the behavior of the sons of men. 
particularly the righteous, as we'll see in verse 5, but then in another sense also the wicked, as we'll see in verse 5 as well. Now, I think this is very helpful. Why would this be important? Why is verse 4, at least the end of it, important for David? Why was it important for David? Why is it important for us to know? Because you might assume when you're seeing the foundations of society being overturned and if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do kind of thing happening, you could assume that God isn't doing anything. You're reminded in light of last week's message that He is doing something. Remember, brethren, to use language from 2 Peter 3, that the long-suffering of our Lord, or the patience of our Lord, is salvation. So God hasn't brought the culmination of history to its culmination yet, hasn't brought history to its culmination yet, because He still has the elect that He is bringing to Himself. So if you're wondering, what is God doing? Well, His patience is connected with Him drawing His sons and daughters to Himself, His elect from the four corners of the earth, if you will, to Himself. But there's also something else that's going on. There's probably a number of things that are going on, obviously, but per this text we see something else. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sun's of men. God is examining. God is observing how people act, how his people react. So I say, what, what is he doing? Well, why hasn't he why hasn't he intervened yet? Part of the answer is he's testing you. He's watching you. With the eyes of paternal love. For all who are in Christ Jesus, who have repented of their sins and trust in Christ, with the eyes of paternal love, doubtless, but He's testing you. He's proving you. He's refining you. We see that in the beginning of verse 5. The first half of verse 5 reads, The Lord, or Yahweh, tests the righteous. Now the word here in the Hebrew for tests is a word that can mean to examine or to prove, or as our text reads, tests. So even as Joseph tested his brothers, you see that in Genesis 42, verses 15 and 16, the Lord tests his children. Now we perhaps wouldn't think of the Lord doing that. Like, I don't think God does that. But the scripture tells us over and over again that he does and provides us with illustrations of him doing that. Genesis 22, verse 1, God tested Abraham. The text clearly says so. And it begins like this, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Right there. It, there it is. <laughs> you could look in um, the book of Job. Job speaks of being tested by God. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. The children of Israel, we know, were tested in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. The psalmist said, For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. And that's the idea that's connoted, that the tests that God's people go through aren't just some tests where God is like capriciously standing by, wondering what's going to happen. No, God knows what's going to happen. He knows the end from the beginning. His understanding, according to Psalm 147, verse 5, is infinite. But when he brings his people through a season, season of testing, that season of testing is joined to their refining. It's joined to their proving. It's not that God doesn't know, but he wants to reveal, to put on display the sincerity of his people's faith. And he's also refining their faith in the midst of those times. He has good purposes for that genuine faith that's displayed amidst fiery trials of one kind or another. And always remember that the difficult providences that his people endure aren't tokens of God's displeasure. Rather, the opposite. They are tokens of God's love. 
He tests the righteous. Again, what do you mean? He allows us to go into situations that are going to try us, but they're also going to refine us. And then as they refine us, they're going to prove us. And in proving us, we come out of that fiery furnace with a faith that is displayed more readily. And a faith that by God's grace is all the more stronger, having been tested in the fire. Now, God proves or tests or examines the righteous. His displeasure, however, is clearly connoted towards the wicked. So he sees all things, and he doesn't only see and know the righteous, but he also sees all the behavior and the motivations of the wicked. The second half of verse 5 reads, But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Now, as I noted in our consideration of Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6, within which we saw language like this, David speaking to God saying, you hate all workers of iniquity, Psalm 5, verse 5, second half, and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, Psalm 5, verse 6, the second half. This verse in verse 11 ought to make many rethink flippantly using the often used language, God hates sin, but loves the sinner. Oh, there's a dynamic that's very complicated. There's a paradox that's set forth in the scriptures. We've considered that. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. How long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you are not willing. God stretching out his hands all day long to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Through Ezekiel, seeing repeatedly in Ezekiel, more times than one, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their way. Why will you die? Language like that. But then you also have language like this. So I think it should guard any Christian against flippantly using phrases that would warrant a lot more explanation than the phrase provides, especially in light of texts like this. Notice here we have two categories represented. You might say the general and the specific. The wicked, that's the general. The bloodthirsty, uh, or I should say the one who loves violence, is a particular brand of the general. This is the opposite of Jesus, right? These people aren't just wicked. That's described in the second half of the verse. They love the wickedness that they do. It's the very opposite of Jesus. You know, one, of the, one of my favorite verses, it's hard to choose favorite verses in the scripture. Like, like I love the whole Bible. So it's kind of like they're all my favorite. But one of the verses that I, you know, two of the verses that I love is found in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For to the Son, he says. So the writer of Hebrews is showing how the Father was speaking to the Son through Psalm 45, ultimately. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That's the opposite of these individuals that are described here. Christ loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. These individuals love violence, which God's soul hates. Strong language appears to be anthropomorphic language, as though to say God at the core of his being, all who God is, hates the one who loves violence. Now, we should infer, I would argue, the opposite about how God feels about the righteous. God loves the righteous. But as far as the wicked, beholding the wicked and seeing what they do leads to judgment. Verse 6 reads, Upon the wicked he will rain coals, better rendered snares. More about that in a moment. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. 
So the imagery here as we read it in our text, including the first line as we read it in our text, but there's a little bit of a nuance that needs to be made, a little bit of a tweak that needs to be made. But nonetheless, it brings forth images of what? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what comes to mind. Now, it's worth noting this. When you read about what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, according, from, according to a New Testament view, it's a kind of scale model example in miniature of what God's going to do on that last day when he judges. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah essentially is, a scale model example in miniature of what God is going to do. I say that because Jude, verse 7, notes that Sodom and Gomorrah are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So it appears to point to the final judgment in the lake of fire. Now the language, upon the wicked he will rain coals, speaks of the suddenness with which this will come. Some translations appropriately render coals, um, uh, um, coals as snares, and I think that's right. While the former does use imagery from other psalms, coals, Coals of fire used in Psalm 18:12. Let burning coals fall upon them. Psalm 140, verse 10. The word that's used here speaks regularly of uh, traps, traps that are used for, say, birds. Um, Hosea chapter 9, verse 8 is a good example. So you're saying, okay, so what does it mean? He's going to rain down snares. Like, what, what does that even mean? What, why use that kind of language? The picture appears to be that of unescapable judgment, inescapable judgment. So he's going to rain down judgment. That was essentially unavoidable. That when it's unleashed, it's a snare that you can't escape from. So you, can, you might imagine the, the preaching in the days of Noah that went on. He was a preacher of righteousness. And we know that the door of the ark was open until it wasn't. And then when the rain fell and the door of the ark was shut, that was it. Judgment was inescapable. So when you see that language, he will rain down snares, the idea appears to be that there comes a point where the judgment of God is inescapable. More about that at the end of this message. Because if you are here in this moment hearing my voice, you can escape the judgment of God. Because there is one who has stood in the place of sinners like you and I to bear the judgment that we deserve so that we can escape. Now, when it says in the next line, fire and brimstone and a burning wind, it uses that language. Again, it connotes familiar pictures of judgment. This is the language used to speak of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 19, verse 24 says, Thus the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And again, that was a picture of the wrath of God against unrepentant wickedness. Now, what I, I want to note one thing here that I think is important. This isn't capricious. This isn't arbitrary. Because how do you know that? Because you look earlier in the psalm and you see that his eyelids behold, his eyelids, eyelids test the sons of men. So he sees all. He has careful scrutiny of all that happens. Therefore, when his justice comes, it's not happening as a result of his ignorance. It's happening as a result of his holiness and his omniscience because he perfectly knows everything that's happening and he judges perfectly. So when you see this verse, you shouldn't say, wow, that is harsh in some way. You should say, no, it is just. It's just because God sees everything. His eyelids behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Perfect examination of all that goes on. And he's perfectly holy. He's in his holy temple. He perfectly is he's perfectly holy. His justice is perfectly just. Very important for us to note. That phrase, burning wind, two words in Hebrew, um, 
word for wind and the word that is um, used for burning. And the idea is pictured clearly of a, of a heat-filled wind. You might imagine what happens at Christ's return. You look at um, Zechariah 14 and 2 Thessalonians 1 and him destroying his enemies with the breath of his mouth. And you see the kind of a description of that in Zechariah 14. And it connotes a burning wind. And the last line reads, shall be the portion of their cup. So the idea is clear. In light of what I was just telling you, the previously described judgment, note this, is the properly assigned portion for unrepentant wickedness. If we want, we want our hearts and minds always to be compassionate, but we don't want to be compassionate to the, to the point where it becomes unbiblically compassionate, you know? So you want to be compassionate, and at the same time, you want to line your mind up with the Word of God and say, no, the judgment of God, it, it's just right. Now, of course, as a human being, I, I cringe at the thought of any person ending up under the judgment of God. That's where compassion comes in. And that's why you plead for men and women to hear and to believe the gospel. But at the same time, you don't come to a point where you say, I'm so compassionate for men and women that I look at God as though he's unjust. No, no, no. You want to hold the two together in proper balance. God is perfectly just. Whatever the cup is that he assigns for the unrepentant, it is the cup that is the rightly apportioned cup. And it should have been the cup that I would drink were it not for the grace of God. Thanks be to God for Christ. You see where it says here, the last line of verse 6, shall be the portion of their cup. As a Christian, does it call to mind Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. I'll never have to drink the portion of my cup. Oh, I don't even want to think of how filled my cup would be. I know I'd have to drink it for all of eternity, and I'd never drink it down in totality. But I don't have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Because my Savior, Jesus Christ, drank it down in its totality for me. When He went to the cross, He absorbed and completely satisfied the will of God. On behalf of all who would believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins. So I would encourage you, before we look at the last verse and what awaits the believer, I would encourage you, if you have not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, note, verse 6 is the portion of the cup that you deserve. It's the portion of the cup that I deserve. Our sins are more than we could even count or imagine, but there is one who drank down the cup of divine wrath on behalf of all who believe in Him. Jesus of Nazareth the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, died under Pontius Pilate, was crucified openly, was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and know that the portion of your cup has been satisfied by Him. And then what awaits you is what is alluded to in the end of verse 7. We'll get there in a moment. But verse 7 reads, For the Lord is righteous... He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. The word for at the beginning of verse 7 gives you kind of the rationale that I was providing for you, right? This judgment is happening for, this is the reason for, Yahweh is righteous. And He loves righteousness. And interesting, the word for righteousness here is in the plural, as to say He loves righteousness, plural, and it could be speaking of, say, good and righteous deeds. He loves anything that's righteous, 
Of course, he loves the display of his own righteousness. Samuel, for instance, spoke of all the righteous acts of Yahweh, which he did to you and to your fathers in 1 Samuel 12, verse 7. But a consequence of his righteousness and his love for righteousness is that he must hate and punish wickedness. And seeing the Lord is righteous, he does just that. But if you just think about God's punishment of the wicked, um, you miss much of who God is. And you miss much of what's connoted in this psalm. As David noted here, his countenance beholds the upright. So the wicked look to secretly shoot at the upright. We saw that in Psalm 11, verse 2. But even as they look to secretly shoot at the upright, we see here that Yahweh's countenance beholds the upright. This is interesting. Because the word for countenance here is in the plural. As though to say faces. His faces. Now it could, could be speaking of eyes, perhaps, anthropomorphically. Uh, so that could be going on here. Or perhaps we have a kind of indirect reference to the Trinity. Similar to the let us statements found in Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Isaiah 6. His countenance or his faces behold the upright. The idea of the line is clear. In this amazing paternal and loving and gracious sense, his eyes are upon his people. Now I want to just bring this together within its context. Sticking to the context here, this is why David did not need to flee or fear. David felt, in light of this psalm, you could say David felt, no, his duty, his calling was not to flee and not to take flight. Well, why? Why, David? Why would you not flee? Why would you not take flight? And you see the argumentation in the psalms. In Yahweh I put my trust, verse 1. Verse 4, he's in heaven. He's on his throne. He is sovereign over all of the affairs of men, however wicked they might be. And he's testing us. He's testing the righteous. He's beholding. He's using this to prove us and to refine us. And then you come to something like this in verse 7, his countenance beholds the upright. As though David is saying, I am under the watchful care of God. He had the conviction that where he was is where he needed to be and he did not need to flee because he was under the watchful care of God. His countenance beholds the upright. Not in some indifferent way. Now, I don't know if rugby has a preseason, but if I were to watch a preseason rugby game on TV... I would watch it in a very indifferent way. Like I'd have my eyes at the screen and I wouldn't really be paying much attention to what's going on. It's the complete opposite that's connoted here. It's God looking at his people. His countenance beholds with love and interest and care the upright. Now, it is worth noting this. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and I end with this. At this point, the text reads like this. The upright shall behold his countenance. Ah, both are true, aren't they? Both are true. See, the Lord beholds the upright. And in now, in here and now, we can behold the face of God, if you will, through the lens of faith. But the great hope for every believer, every son or daughter of God, is what's often referred to as the beatific vision. Jesus referred to it in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Whatever it means for a believer to have that that view of God. You think of when Jesus in Matthew 18 talked about the angels that behold the face of his Father. 
You know, what does that even mean? What does that look like? You think of those verses that speak about seeing Jesus face to face. That we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. This is the motivation that's even greater than duty, as great as duty is. So there's a priority that's greater than safety, and it's duty. And there's a motivation that's even greater than duty, as great as that is. And it's love, because it's the righteous who long to see the face of God. It is what awaits the people of God. The righteous long to see his face. And even as David said, you and I could say, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. So in this psalm, we see much. Repeatedly, faith over fear. Duty over safety. And overarching, what should drive every son or daughter of God is that grace-granted reward that goes to the pure in heart. Those who are made by the grace of God to be the pure in heart. And that is to behold his face. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great vision that awaits your people who are still on this side of the proverbial River Jordan. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that in the midst of the times and seasons in which we live, that there are people, your people, scattered throughout the globe, and some of whom, according to your gracious providence, will move from one place to another. And then there will be others that you will call to, even as David was speaking of in this psalm, to stay. And Lord, I know that in David's life he had different times of flight, but we thank you for the example of this psalm, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be a people, that regardless of where you uh, have uh, intended for us to be, that we, by your grace, should choose faith over fear, that we should choose duty over safety, and that the greatest motivation that should drive us above all motivations should be love for you. And then, of course, the love for your people and love for others that is joined to that. Oh, Father, we say together, even now, even as David did, in you we put our trust, Lord. We put our trust in you. Knowing that you are testing us, Lord, and proving us and refining us in the situations that we are going through, we pray that above all, Lord, that even as the Apostle Paul said, that we make it our aim to be pleasing in your sight. Uh, May you help us by your grace to run the race that is set before us, Lord, um, with diligence, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, whom having not seen, to use language from uh, your apostle Peter, yet we love, Lord. And I thank you that the day will come uh, where faith will be made sight. So help us, Heavenly Father to run with diligence by grace through faith and to long for the moment where faith is made sight and the pure in heart see God. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.